John chapter 4, verses 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Well, good morning. Let's open up your Bibles to John chapter 4. And we're going to be in verses 27 through 42 this morning. And while you do that, I just want to uh, take this opportunity to thank, thank you all. Uh, for your overwhelming generosity, your kindness and compassion. Uh, last week, in about 24 hours, we were able to do some things to provide uh, relief and encouragement to uh, the people in Baton Rouge. Uh, we were able to buy enough food to feed somewhere around 1,200 people, 1,200 meals. Uh, we were able to work alongside people uh, in the late nights leading up to our departure. Uh, I was out buying supplies and loading up the trailer, but every time Natalie came home, there were bags of donations that that you guys brought by our house and left there for us. Uh, We filled up our trailer with all the stuff that was donated. And uh, on top of that, we did it the right way. And so for those of you who have heard us talk about empowerment ministry and what, what does a, a, like a mission trip actually look like, uh, we were able to take all of that stuff and give it to Central Bible Church. Uh, it's a church where I was previously a youth pastor before we moved here to allow them to minister to their community. You know, we, this food, there were, there were rations going on. You, you literally had to wait in line at Walmart and you could only get 20 items per person. So people were trying to figure out, okay, how many people do we need to have go to stand in line to get the things that we'll need this week? And so us giving Central Bible Church the food, uh, the cleaning supplies, the, the storage bins, all these things that we gave them, people were getting to know Central Bible Church. You know, Sulphur Community Church was there for a week and then we were gone. But this allowed Central Bible to be able to establish relationships with people. And I can tell you last Sunday, I know for one, my cousin, who had been ministered to, showed up. She hadn't been in church in 10 years. But because of the church's love for her that she saw, she came and, you know, she's asking to meet with the pastor and just really cool stuff. In addition to that, a team traveled on Saturday about three hours with traffic to come, work really hard for seven hours in a house that had no A.C., to turn back around and drive two and a half hours back. And while it may not have seemed like much, especially for that specific team, because as they were driving in, they drove through subdivision after subdivision, house after house, with things just sitting on the side of the road. This is a pot, the city we were in, Central, about 95% of its population was affected by this flood. We worked in one house that day. And while it was just one house, I can tell you that that one house belonged to one of my best friend's mom and stepdad, who basically lost all of their material possessions. Included in those possessions were all of the medical equipment to take care of my friend Jeff's stepdad, who has MS. He can only get around now these days with an electric wheelchair. They They were able to get that out, but... Everything else was destroyed. My friend Jeff sent me a text message later that evening with a video that he had taken at some point throughout the day. And as a pastor, my heart swelled up because what he saw as he he went around the room, all you could hear was hammers clanging and pry bars, and you could hear sheetrock falling to the floor and being thrown into a wheelbarrow. Uh, and he sent me words afterwards that just expressed sincere appreciation. I'll give you, to quote him, he said, I cannot thank y'all enough. So blessed 
to know caring people. All of you, whether it was from going to make purchases for food, going to buy donations, bringing it by our house, going to work alongside people who were hurting, all of you were a tremendous form of encouragement. God was made much of. And that's our goal, right? On top of all that, you cared for me well. Several of you sent me text messages or asked to my face, hey, how are you doing? So thank you. Let's move forward. This morning, we are finishing a section of John's Gospel that that gives us the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And I've got to be honest with you, I was a little jealous of Trent, that Trent got last week's passage. Uh, He kind of told you, this is one of those passages that's, to quote, saturated with the Gospel. And indeed it is. I would put chapter 4 probably like in the... In the chapters in John, probably fourth on my list, there's John 6, John 10, John 15, and then probably John 4. Because there's so much here in this one narrative about the woman at the well. As Trent pointed out last week, we can see Jesus' intentionality. He was very intentional with the things that he did. We can see his divine pursuit of this undeserving woman. We can see his divine omniscience as he reveals to her his all-knowing power that he knows everything about this woman, and he's never met her. We can see racial reconciliation between Jew and Samaritan. We can see gender reconciliation as the Son of God, being male, reveals himself as the Messiah to a woman, which went against the cultural norm. We see Jesus' divine compassion for the social outcast as he pursues this woman that was labeled by society as loose, one who got around, and probably many other labels that I'll refrain from using because they're very hurtful. We see his desire to liberate sinners from their bondage and shame. We saw once again the requirement for the Spirit of God to grant regeneration or to grant new birth, new life for one to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can see the desire of God to redeem people from all nations. We learn some things about evangelism, about true spiritual worship. We learn some things and had to ask ourselves where man finds ultimate satisfaction and where might we pursue that? And how we try to appear externally religious even in the midst of conviction and shame. To be honest, we could probably spend a few months just in this narrative. We've decided to do it in two weeks. The reason for that, I really hope this past week you were able in your community groups to get deep into the discussion of what's here, what you saw in this passage And I hope this week serves as another opportunity for you to do that. Our narrative of study this morning looks much like a drama, like a play, or even like a soap opera, where you have scene changes, and you're left in suspense wondering what's going to happen next. As we follow along, let's not forget our purpose in studying this. We desire to see the glory of Christ the glory as of the only Son from the Father. We desire to know Him, to know Him truly as God, as we pursue to become more and more like Him. That's why John writes his gospel, and that's why we study it. As we move through the text this morning, I've identified five sections that communicate certain aspects of Christ's glory, His identity, that reveal him as God. We'll see his divine providence. We'll see his divine liberating power. We'll see his divine source of life, his divine omniscience, and then we will see Jesus as the Savior of the world. Let's first look at Jesus' divine providence in verse 27 of chapter 4. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? 
I want to point out to you that when we were in chapter 2, when Jesus was performing the miracle at the wedding in Cana, we were introduced to a theme about Jesus' divine timeline. You remember how he responded to his mother and said, My hour has not yet come. And I'll walk you through the Gospel of John, pointing out that there are going to be times where Jesus is going to get closer and closer to that hour, where he'll say, My hour is coming. My hour is near. My hour has come. When Jesus came to earth, he had a divine purpose and a divine timeline that he lived according to. And we saw evidence of that last week, right? Trent pointed out where it said that he had to go through Samaria. And how in the Greek that was like a, the same word as a requirement. It was required of Jesus to go through Samaria. Now I want you to understand, I think Trent pointed, out this, pointed this out last week. Your typical Jew is not going to be required to go through Samaria. They're going to travel around Samaria. Because Samaria, by definition of who they are, they're half-breeds. They're unclean people. They were originally Jews who intermarried with Gentiles, and so they're not considered clean. And the Jews had a lot of hatred towards the Samaritans. But Jesus had to. And we saw that, right? Jesus goes to the well in the middle of the day to get water. No one goes to the well in the middle of the day. If you're going to get water for the day, you're going to go in the cool of the morning. Or you might go wait till dusk and go when the temperatures drop. Because think about where they are. It's very hot there. But Jesus has to go through Samaria and go to the well in the middle of the day. Surely nobody's going to come, right? And of course, we saw last week that there is one. There's one who comes. And she does so to avoid the shame and mockery for her lifestyle. It's a Samaritan woman who had many male friends. Jesus' divine timeline and purpose required him to go meet with this woman. So we see already this timeline. Now, when I refer to Jesus' divine providence, I think it's best for us to, have, to define this. So this is your theological nugget of truth for the day. We're going to define what providence is. This is the attribute of God in which He is active in the order of all things and events. He is actively involved. He is not the creator who creates everything and steps away and watches it as it unfolds. But he is actively engaging his creation. In his systematic theology textbook, Wayne Grudem defines God's providence as this, and we've got this on the, on the slides for you. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that, one, he keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Two, he cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And three, directs them to fulfill his purposes. He is actively involved with his creation, holding it together, directing its actions to fulfill his purposes. This doctrine is supported by, script, by Scripture, like Hebrews 1.3, where we see that the Son of God is upholding the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1.17, where the Lord Jesus Christ is holding all things together. Ephesians 1.11 says that God accomplishes, or that he works, that he brings about all things according to the counsel of his will. Psalm 135, 6-7 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from His storehouses. And we could spend a lot of time here this morning on God's providence no event falls outside of God's providence. Now that will probably lead to a lot of discussion in your community groups this week. That's a difficult thing for us to wrap our minds around. Because what about the flood two weeks ago? 
How does that fall within God's providence when you see so many people hurting? How about the earthquake this week? There's, there, there weren't just floods in Louisiana, by the way. I, I, think, I think we had somebody in our church, Kyle, posted where I think it was up north that there was another flood just this past week. When we look at deaths, how do these things fall within the providence of God? I'll let you talk about that this week in your community groups. Here we have another example of Jesus' divine providence on display in the fact that all of the events in this narrative occur according to that divine timeline that he's on. We already saw how Jesus worked all things with the woman, right? Where he goes to the well in the middle of the day, he sends his disciples off to get food so that he can have this conversation alone with the Samaritan woman. In verse 26, he reveals himself as the promised Messiah. And then in verse 27, what do we see? Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? See, not only did Jesus providentially arrange for him to have this conversation in isolation, but he also arranged for the disciples to return just as the discussion was ending. Not too soon, so that he could finish that discussion, but not too late, so that the disciples could see that it occurred. And they could marvel, and they could question in their hearts and minds these questions that John says that they didn't actually ask. What do you seek? Why are you talking with her? Jesus displayed divine providence, which further reveals his identity as God in the flesh. Now it's here that we go to our drama structure, our play. We have a couple of scene changes. What we have is all of our main characters are together, right? So Jesus has been talking to the Samaritan woman. The disciples are approaching. And then the woman's going to go one way, and Jesus is going to stay put with his, with his disciples. And John records for us two events that are happening at the same exact time. I thought it was kind of fun to think about. To, to think about what this would look like if somebody were to do a production of this. We'll have a couple of scene changes. First, let's follow the woman. As Jesus, as we see the effect of Jesus' divine liberating power. In verses 28 through 30. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Now, a lot of people will spend too much time, probably, on trying to figure out why the woman left her water jar. I mean, I've read commentary after commentary, and I can tell you that there's like five or six different ideas. And some people think it has spiritual significance. Some think it's just practical. I'll give you some options, and then we'll look at the whole I'm not going to be able to nail down the specific purpose, but we can look at the whole and say, okay, what can we tell from this? First option, she forgot because she was so excited. She just met the promised Messiah. So what does she do? She takes off. She's excited. She has to go tell people, hey, he's here. And so in her excitement, she leaves, and she leaves everything that she brought with her. It's possible. Second option is she wanted to go tell others, but the Messiah has just asked for water. He's thirsty. So she leaves her water jar knowing that he doesn't have anything to draw water with so that he can drink. There could be some spiritual significance. What did Jesus just talk to her about? If you knew who was asking you for a drink, you would ask him because he would provide you with living water. Anybody who drinks of this well is going to thirst again because it doesn't satisfy, but I'll provide water that will satisfy for eternity. And so it could be spiritual in the sense of when she runs off leaving behind the physical water jar, she is showing that she now knows she believes in Jesus as a son of God and doesn't need that water anymore because she's received the living water and is satisfied. 
she could have left it as collateral, like a pledge that she's going to come back. It's kind of like this, okay, you're the Messiah. I believe you. I'm going to leave, and I'm going to go get other people, but I'm coming back, so please don't leave. In fact, here's a sign that I'm going to come back. Here's my water jar. Keep it. Or she could have seen the disciples coming. I mean, obviously the disciples were close enough to see Jesus having this conversation with her. Maybe she saw them coming, and she was intimidated, scared. I mean, she's a Samaritan woman. And it's, it's enough to go through a conversation with one Jewish man, but when you see a bunch of them coming, this is her normal practice, right? She avoids people. I'm not really sure, honestly, and I don't think anyone in our day can be sure of which one is true. But I think what we can see from every single one of those ideas is that there's an abrupt change. Jesus says, I'm the Messiah. She's been there to get water, having this, 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 this discussion with him. And then she has this sense of urgency. In whatever fashion it came from, she leaves. And she goes. She goes to the town of Sychar. And she's going to tell others who she has just encountered. So the woman leaves. She goes back to the town and she starts telling the people. It's likely that she was actually approaching the men for a couple reasons. Because that word there we have in Greek can be used for people, mankind, or it can be used specifically for men, plural. As she's running into the town, she would have found the men of the city sitting at the gate, as they would always be doing, talking about the, the matters of the day, matters of the time. This was common practice. So as she's excitedly running into the town, who is she going to see first? The men. Also, think about who she is. Think about her history. Who does she feel more comfortable with? The men or the women? This is a woman who has had four, five husbands. The, the guy she's living with now is not her husband. She avoids, she arranges her whole daily schedule to avoid interaction with the other women. Because it's the women who would have gone to the well in the cool of the morning. It's the women who would have gone in the evening to get the water because the men would have been working throughout the day. And her lifestyle leads her to avoid interaction with women. She was probably more comfortable with men. Notice the change that occurs since her interaction with Jesus. She goes to the men and she says, Come, see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Do you see the significance in that question or that statement? This is a woman who has arranged her daily schedule to avoid dealing with all of these things that she's ever done. And here, after interacting with Jesus, she goes to the first person she sees and she says, Hey, there's a guy at the well and she actually brings up these things. He told me everything that I've ever done. Why does she do that? There's no shame anymore. She is no longer ashamed of that. The past is the past. She still did all of those things that she was ashamed of. But by the power of this interaction with Jesus, she has a greater hope. And she gets past her, her guilt and her shame to approach people so that they can see it too. There's a greater need that she recognizes. These men need to come meet Jesus. They need to come meet this man at the well. I wonder for those of us who have believed in Jesus as the Son of God, how many still cling to the chains of guilt and shame that once bound us. This woman lived a life full of shame and regret until the day that she met Jesus and believed in Him. He gave her freedom. He liberated her. And what did she do with that freedom? She takes off and she goes to get others to bring along with her. How many of us are just sitting here 
with the chains that once shackled us unlocked. We've believed. We've been given freedom. But we're still clinging to it. We're holding on to it. Even though God has let go and forgiven us, we haven't forgiven ourselves. And so there we are. The chains that once were locked around our ankles and wrists are now open, and we can go. We're free. But we still sit in that shame. We don't live in the grace that's been given to us. Or how about when it comes to bringing people to Christ? We hide the things that we've been freed from. Now, let's, let's use some discernment here. I'm not saying just go around and tell everybody everything you've ever done. That's not wise. You don't want that. But do you realize how the glory of Christ is revealed in your freedom, in your liberation, when you've been delivered from some of these things? How a great ministry opportunity it is when you come across a young lady in this case who may be doing the same thing as this Samaritan woman. Finding satisfaction, pursuing satisfaction in the comfort of a, of a man's arms. Night after night, men after men, man after man. Do we live and operate out of the shame? Or do we live in that freedom that we've been given? so that Christ's glory may be seen. This woman's past serves all the more as a means through which Christ was glorified. She runs to the men and says, hey, this guy told me everything I've ever done. I've done some really bad things. This guy knows all about it, and he cares for me. Come see him. Come meet him. If you haven't believed in Christ, I hope you see what he offers you. Freedom from your guilt and shame. God knows you. This morning, before I left the house, I was praying. It's a scary thing to preach God's Word, and so a lot of times I pray for my own heart. And one of the things that, that I meditated on and I thought about and confessed to God is like, you know, I, can, I, I have sin in my heart. I do sinful things. I think sinful thoughts. And I can hide that from all of you. You can't see it. But guess who does? Every time I think something that's sinful, every time I have this evil motive in my heart, or I do something that is disobedient to God's word and his plan for my life, somebody else may not see it, but God sees it. And I'm doing it right in front of him. He knows us. And the thing is, he knows us right where we are, and he's still pursuing us. He cares for us. He has a desire for us to know Him. He already knows us, but He's coming after our hearts. Jesus possesses the same divine liberating power as His Father. He has the authority to forgive and grant freedom, and we'll see that come up later in John's Gospel. That makes some people very angry when He starts forgiving people. But before we leave this scene, I also want to point out the humility of the woman and her invitation to the men. Understand that had she approached the men and said, hey, I met this Messiah, the one that everybody's been talking about for centuries, and when our people have been waiting on, I met him, come see him at the well. They would have thought she was crazy. Oh, it's another one of those Messiah people. They think they're in the Messiah. We're not going to go. Whatever. She's crazy. Plus, she's a woman. And in her culture, the women didn't advise the men of anything. She's pretty tricky. She's smart. She's in her culture, and she knows what to do. So she goes to the men and asks in a question form, could this be the Christ? Guys, I need you to come. I need you to come tell me. Is this him? To which the men, of course, get all macho, right? And okay, yeah, yeah, we'll go see. We'll go check it out. Because you need us to tell you if it's the Messiah, so I'm going to go do that. She knows. 
but she asks in a question, could this be the Christ? And so our scene ends with the men of the town going out to the well. And then we return to Jesus. So the curtains close, curtains open, and now we're there with Jesus and his disciples at the well. And he is in a teaching moment with his disciples where he's going to reveal a little bit more of his glory. He's going to reveal a little bit more about who he is to them. First, he talks about his divine source of life in verses 31 through 34. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So, in the meantime, while the woman is going to talk to the men and they're all coming out to him at the well, the disciples are found urging Jesus to eat. They're saying, Rabbi, eat. When I learned the significance of those words, I got like weirdly excited, like Christian Bible nerd kind of excited because it, it doesn't, it shouldn't be exciting, but it is. Do you remember how we have seen people respond to Jesus's difficult saying so far? I think it was Hunter in our group this week said, Jesus says some weird things at weird times. I mean, my food is to do the will of my father. That's hard to understand, but we've seen this already. I mean, you think about Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus was our prime example. Jesus says, you must be born again. Nicodemus, a very intelligent man, says, what is that supposed to mean? I can't crawl into my mother's womb. What do you mean by that? Just think about our Samaritan woman. (laughs) Jesus says, if you knew who I was, you would have asked me for a drink, and I would have given you living water. To which she responds, how can you give me water? You don't even have a bucket. You can't draw water out the well. And by the way, who do you think you are? This is the well that our father Jacob gave us. He drank from it. You think you're better than him? Jesus responds, yeah, but everybody who drinks of this well, they're going to be thirsty again. They won't be satisfied. But the water that I'm going to give... It gives you eternal satisfaction. To which she responds, that's great. I don't have to come to this well anymore. It's hot. I don't even have to try to avoid people. Can you give it to me? Jesus changed the subject and he says, go call your husband. She says, I don't have one. He says, you're right, you don't. You've had five. And the one you're living with right now is not yours. What does she do? She redirects. Sir, you complete stranger, I appreciate you uh, revealing all of my deepest and darkest secrets. Um, That makes me uncomfortable, so let's change the subject. Uh, Let me act religious in front of you, because clearly you're a prophet. Hey, can you tell me where I'm supposed to go worship? We see this over and over again, where Jesus is, is being misunderstood. Because people are focused on the physical world around them. And they miss out on the spiritual. The disciples are no different. When you see them saying, Rabbi, eat, the reason they're saying that is because they're hungry. You can't eat before your rabbi eats. So when they say, Rabbi, eat, they've got, okay, they probably didn't have steak, but for us, it would be like a steak dinner right in front, and they're just savoring, they're they're dripping with saliva. I'm starving. Rabbi, eat so I can eat. They're not concerned with Jesus' well-being here. They're concerned with their own. And then Jesus sets them up. He says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. I imagine the disciples thinking, looking at each other, wondering if the heat has gotten to Jesus. Like, is he, is he dehydrated? What's wrong with him? There's nobody around. The only person was that woman, and she didn't have any food. Who gave him something to eat? And then Jesus does his thing. Again, one of those weird sayings. And he reveals where his true source of life comes from. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. 
I think the reason this comes off as weird to us sometimes is because we talked about this a couple weeks ago. He is above all things. Jesus is above all. His purpose was not clearly revealed to them at this point. And so when he starts talking about my food is to do the will of my Father, that's difficult for them to understand. He, he's contrasting himself from the disciples. The disciples are hungry. They need food to give them energy and life. The divine Son of God says his food, his life-giving source, is to do the will of his Father and to accomplish his work. You see the difference. The disciples are focused on their physical needs and desires while Jesus is focused on his divine purpose. This week, actually yesterday, as I was reading some last-minute preparation in a commentary, I found some of of Natalie's notes that I had taken from from her about a couple years ago, and I had slid it into this commentary so that I could go back and refer to it at some point. And when it was our pastor when we were in, in college in Alexandria, and he, he, he used a great illustration here to talk about what this was like for the disciples. It's like when you go to the grocery store when you're hungry, right? When you go to the grocery store and you're hungry, you go with a list, at least we do. I mean, every, every week, Natalie says, hey, what, what do you need from the grocery? And I'm boring, so I get the same thing every single week. It kills her, but she's adapted over time. Oatmeal, turkey, almonds, Same stuff over and over. But when you go when you're hungry, you start going after those things on your list, and then you're like, oh, that's good. That looks so good. Well, that's on sale. I don't need it, but it's on sale, so I'll grab it. I need to stock up my freezer. Let me get some sausage and some chicken. And And all of a sudden, you went with a $50 plan, and you ended up spending $250. It's the same thing here. They have a purpose. They have a plan. But they're hungry. And they're distracted. All they can think about is that steak dinner right in front of them. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Well, what is this will? What is the Father's will that gives Jesus this source of energy in life? If you will, turn to John chapter 6. Just flip over a couple pages. John chapter 6, verses 38 through 40. Jesus clearly communicates his Father's will. He says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Jesus makes it very clear that His obedience to His Father in glorifying Him through the redemption of souls is His food. That's what gives Him life. While in His humanity, He does require physical food, He is the Son of God and gets more satisfaction from the redemption of souls than any steak dinner could provide. Once again, just like last week when we were compelled to consider how we might be like the woman and in seeking satisfaction from relationships or or other things of this world, we were compelled to consider how we might be like the disciples. They were more concerned with their physical desires, their physical needs, so much so that they missed out on the spiritual needs of others. I wonder how often we do that. Whether it be lack of sleep, that's a real thing. Young parents, shift workers, people who just stay up, musicians, people who stay up too late, watching Netflix or doing whatever else you're doing. Lack of sleep is a real thing. That's a physical thing we need. Lack of food or drink, lack of money, lack of exercise, lack of personal interaction, lack of good health, lack of time, 
lack of capacity. How often do we get so focused on the physical that we miss out on the spiritual? Jesus is pointing this out to the disciples here as he prepares to use them to accomplish the will of his Father. As Jesus encourages them to lift their gaze from their physical needs to the spiritual needs of others, he reveals another attribute, his omniscience. In verses 35 through 38, Jesus says, Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. But here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Jesus uses an agricultural analogy to teach his disciples. He points to the common knowledge that the harvest was still four months away. The physical harvest. Jesus is saying despite the natural order of sowing and reaping, and that the physical harvest is not yet ready, the spiritual harvest is ready. So lift up your eyes and see it. Stop looking at the stake in front of you. Lift up your eyes. What's interesting here is that when the disciples would have lifted their eyes, they would have looked across the fields and they would have seen grain that was not yet ripe, that was not ready for the harvest. But off in the distance, they would have seen the Samaritan men coming, dressed in their white robes. The physical harvest was not ready, but the spiritual one is, and it's coming. Jesus knew that they would be coming because he knows what is in man, remember? The very end of John chapter 2. He knows the hearts of men. These were men who were, for the sake of using the agriculture, they were ripe. They were ready. When they heard the testimony of the woman, they believed and they go. He knows because he's omniscient. He knows what is in man and he has displayed his omniscience already in the knowledge of the Samaritan woman's history. In agriculture, typically the farmer who sows also reaps. That's not always the case in the spiritual realm. Jesus tells the disciples that they will be reaping a harvest that they did not work for. And in so doing, they will be compensated with the eternal joy. And of course, here we can take a moment and look at this reality in our own lives. Some reap, some sow. Sometimes you get to do both. But our goal, whether it's sowing or it's reaping, is that eternal life would be gained. And when that happens, we all rejoice together. Sometimes we get to be a part of God's effectual call in the life of an individual passing from death into life. But before that happened, there was one who sowed. Sometimes we're the sower. And we won't get to see the fruit of our labor until we are in eternity. It's the same principle that Paul discusses in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 9, when he says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Some sow, some water, some harvest, but God gives the growth. When you think about a farmer and he plants that seed, he's, he's displaying faith that that will grow. The same is true of us as we sow seeds, as we share the gospel and display the attributes of Christ where we glorify Him. We are trusting in faith that God will bring the growth. So we have to ask ourselves, are we living faithfully as sowers? Or do we get impatient? Do we find the labor a little bit too, too difficult for us? 
In our passage in John, John, Jesus is inviting his disciples to get past their physical needs and enter into the labor of the sowers of these people of Sychar. Lastly, we see Jesus as the Savior of the world. In verses 39 through 42, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. We see this statement that many believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. She said, He told me all that I ever did. And many believed. But we've seen something like that before, haven't we? Where people saw the signs, the power that Christ had, and they believed, but they didn't truly believe in his glory. Where they saw the signs, but they did not see the glory. Nicodemus was our prime example, right? Notice the difference here with the Samaritans. They believed. Jesus, knowing their hearts, knowing what is in man, this time talks about a harvest coming. They came to him and they asked him to stay with them, knowing what was in their hearts. He stayed for two days, revealing himself to them. You realize how crazy this is. These are Samaritans. It was enough for Jesus to go through Samaria, but to spend two days in the homes of these people. But he knows what's in their hearts. And when he stayed, many more believed because of his word. They tell the woman, we've now experienced firsthand this Messiah. We believe in him and we know him to be the savior of the world. They, going back to chapter 1, verse 14, they beheld his glory. They saw his glory. They didn't see his signs. They didn't see his power. They saw him for all that he was. This is a real, this is of great significance to them and to us, the fact that they say that he is the Savior of the world. If Jesus was just the Savior of the Jews as the Jews believed the Messiah would be, these people don't benefit at all. Neither do we. But they saw his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, glory as the Savior of the entire world, all peoples Jew, Gentile, male, female. Whatever race, whatever walk of life, whatever you've done in the past, all peoples, all types. I can't let this go without at least mentioning the fact that God has always had a plan to redeem all peoples. You hear us talk about that a lot. But you see where Jesus goes, right? First, he has this encounter with a Jew, Nicodemus. Then what's his next encounter? It's not with a Jew. It's with a Gentile. Paul does the same thing, right? I preach the gospel first to the Jew, then to the Greek. Jesus is pursuing all nations. And he starts right here with this little town of Sychar. While there is multiplicity to the types of people, right? You've got all kinds of people that are saved, that Jesus is pursuing. There's only one Savior. They confess Him as the Savior. That's a definite article that indicates there's only one Savior of the world. There is no other. So Christian, how does your belief or disbelief in the providence of God affect your daily life? What do your decisions or what does your behavior reveal about your trust in God's control over all things? Do you struggle with believing that God is actively in control? Are you living in the freedom of the grace and forgiveness that's been given to you? Or do you continue to cling to those unlocked chains of shame and guilt? 
If you are, what does that reveal about your belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? How often do we get caught up in meeting our own physical needs or wants and miss out on the greater spiritual needs of others or even ourselves? This week, I was talking to Blake. Blake and I got together Monday. And this, is, this has been coming for some time. But through other meetings, interactions with members in our church, finally Monday, studying this, I don't think we pray enough. We do a great job of setting up each week, of hanging out with our, our neighbors, of loving them. We do a great job of offering relief to people in Baton Rouge on a short notice. But are we doing all of that in our own power? (laughs) When it comes to salvation, are we praying for salvation or are we just throwing out seeds? Are we asking God to give the growth? That's been a conviction of mine recently. Not for my personal life, but to lead. Am I leading our church to be people of prayer? So this morning, I got here a little bit earlier than usual. It's okay, I can wake up a little bit earlier. And I just found a place to pray. And what I'm doing is I'm looking for four, five, six core people that are going to say, hey, I'm going to commit to coming to meet every single Sunday morning before church around 945 to just pray. Pray for our church, pray for ourselves, whatever that would look like. It's going to be very informal, but to pray. And it's open to anyone, but I'm really looking for some committed individuals. Because I think we get so caught up in meeting the physical needs, the things that are required of us to, to have a worship service on Sunday mornings or to have community groups throughout the week. And we focus on the physical part of it. Are we missing out on the spiritual? And how are we doing in our role as sowers? Have we grown weary? Have we grown impatient? The role of the sower is one that requires much faith. We must faithfully sow the seeds of the gospel and trust that God will bring the growth. And if there's anyone that has not believed in Christ... I hope you see that He came so that you would know Him. So that you would see Him for all that He is and believe in Him. That He is the only Savior of the world. He is the only way possible to be saved from the penalty of disobedience to God and your rebellion. We're all there. He is patient. He is loving. He is gracious and merciful and forgiving. He can free you from all of your past guilt and shame. You just need to believe. Believe that He is the Son of God, that He is God in the flesh that lived a sinless life, that He died on the cross, and not just this general that I believe He died, but that He did it on my behalf because I needed it. He paid the penalty for my sin. And that He rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, where he's patiently waiting for all who will believe. I pray that you would be one of those individuals. He is the one and only Savior of all peoples. Father.